0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Let's open the Bible together to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you wonder, how much longer is he going to say that? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Not much longer. One more week. All right. We're almost there. We started in August, and uh, this is a short letter, so uh, we'll be finished with that. And then we're going to start a new book that will take us through Christmas time. And so after next week, you can start reading something new if you want to, the book of Ruth. The Old Testament, we're going to preach that through our Christmas season, and I think it'll be really apparent why we're doing that and how it fits together, but uh, looking forward to that. So today, a long text, verses 12 through 22 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and if we've not met, my name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here at Foothills. Thanks so much for being in the room with us. Thanks for joining us in the student building on the live stream, and for those who are at home doing that, we're grateful uh, that you're joining us as well. Hey, there's a photo on the screen. And uh, these two guys are famous. I don't know if you can recognize them under all that gear, but this photo was taken in May of 1953. It's of Edmund Hillary, a New Zealander, and a man named Tenzing Norgay. They were part of a larger British expedition. They had one common cause that they were all battling for, and that was to be the first to the top of Mount Everest. They wanted to be those that would summit uh, Mount Everest. These two guys actually went two days after the first assault toward the summit. The first one was unsuccessful. These two guys made it all the way to the top. And so they are down in history. Because of that, they climbed that mountain. And I think that uh, this photo of the two of them climbing, tethered together, roped together, is very much a picture. It kind of gets to the heart of really the Christian life that all of us live in this this world. It reminds me of of the work of the church and together as brothers and sisters in Christ because we're climbing, as it were, to that day when Christ returns. And we're moving through a world that's broken and full of sin and difficulties. The climb is steep and it's difficult. It's dangerous. And that's what they were facing. It reminds me of that. We face pressures on the way. They face pressures. The values of the world press in on us to make different kinds of choices about our lives, within our families, at work, uh, how we spend our time in leisure, the uh, temptations of our own flesh. They really fight against us. We face pressure there. We get pressure from people on the outside, people who are antagonistic about our faith in Christ. And what does it mean to really be a follower of Jesus in the world? And, And then certainly we face difficulties when we lose a loved one to death or someone that we know is struggling hard with their health. And those kinds of things kind of threaten our hope at times. And yet Paul has told these people in Thessalonica that God's will for them is to be sanctified, to walk in a way that pleases God more and more, that their hearts and their lives are in sync with the will of God, that they look more and more like Jesus all of the time. And so that's what he's been pressing in in the last two chapters of 1 Thessalonians. He's been picking on some particular subjects that, that I think were hot issues within that church. And certainly they have bearing for us. He was telling them to be sexually pure in a society that was saturated with sexual immorality and sensuality. He, he told them to aspire to live certain kinds of lives, extraordinary lives really, in the face of people who were not yet believers. Uh, he was talking to them about grieving the death of loved ones. And he said, it's good to grieve, but don't grieve as if you have no hope. Remember the resurrection of the dead, that Jesus has, has, has paved the way for that, and he's returning. And because he's returning, let's be awake and let's live sober lives, right, before people in this world. These two guys were probably friends. Uh, they were together, that expedition, for some time. You don't just meet up there one day and head up the mountain on the next You've got to acclimatize, even in those days. And, and I think that these two men had become friends over time. They looked out for each other when they were on that dangerous climb. And the same thing ought to be said for us as members of the church. You know, 16 times in the letter to the Thessalonians, Paul refers to them as brothers. Over and over that term, brothers. And I think we could say brothers and sisters. In other words, we're not just friends. We're family We are related to one another forever through our mutual faith and trust in the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. So we've been knit together as a family and Paul is closing his letter and he's answering a question. What does it look like to be a family of believers headed to forever together? What does it look like to be a family of believers headed to forever together? And he describes that, he really breaks it out in 17 Commands. If you want to take a note today, just write that down, 17 commands. Between verse 22, verse 12 and verse 22, that's what's there. And it can be a little daunting when you read through it, right? A little bit like that stack of dishes at the end of Thanksgiving. 17 commands. How do I keep track? How do I make sure I obey all of these? It's going to be difficult, right? But these must be crucial. They're in the Bible. The Spirit has given them to the church. And so we do well to listen, to obey, to follow them, to get into line with them and ask the Spirit's power to, to do that. And so we're going to do that this morning. We could think of them, if you will, as, as uh, core values for the family of believers headed to forever together. And I, I kind of put them under three big headings. How do you preach 17 commands? Well, I could do 17 sermons. I'm not for that either. <laughs> So I said, let's do one sermon, and I'm going to form them up under three headings. The first heading is this, that we humbly submit to the, those who lead us. Humbly submit to those who lead us. And the second one is to do good to those around us. And the third one is to trust and obey the God who saves us. And so I'm hoping that what I've done is appropriate and that it, it helps us move towards Paul's point, which is the point of the text, all right? And I hope that you'll see that. So we're going to read the text, and we'll pray, and we'll jump into it, all right? Let's hear what Paul wrote to these people and what the Spirit is telling us today. He says to them, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil or anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Our Father and our God, this morning we come to you again and we thank you for your word that you've given to us. We believe that the Holy Spirit has breathed it out and men like Paul and James and Peter and Matthew and so many others put pen to paper and you guided them and directed them, and we have before us your word, sufficient and true, right and holy. And Father, this morning, I pray that we would have ears to hear what your spirit has to say to us through your word, that we would not be distracted by anything, but that we would give all of our attention to what you have to say, that you would speak to us and lead us by your spirit into the truth, that you would convict our hearts of sin, sin, of any behavior, of any kind of thinking, of wrong beliefs, that you would bring correction to our lives, that you bring encouragement and comfort to us, that you would lead us to become more and more like Jesus so that in the end, when we come to that summit, when we come to that day when Christ returns, that we would be your sanctified people, that you would find us walking in a way that pleases you more and more. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So here's the first heading, right? Humbly submit to those who lead us in verses 12 and 13. Let's look at it one more time. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. It's obvious that Paul believes that there are God-given leaders in the church, God-given leaders in the church, who are worthy of respect and worthy to be held in high esteem, in love, for the work that they do. And and we know, I believe, that Paul is speaking about elders and pastors in the church. We get that, or at least I get that, from Acts 14, where Paul establishes these churches. And what does he do? He goes back through on the very first missionary journey, and he establishes elders and pastors in those churches. He encourages Timothy to do the same, as he writes to him in 1 Timothy. He encourages Titus to do the same, to order and organize those churches, to give them leaders. These are God-surfaced Men who lead these churches. In Acts 20, he meets with the Ephesian elders. And the scriptures there say that the Spirit gave the elders to the churches. And so, he continues that process. I think that's exactly who he's speaking about and referring to here when he says, there are brothers among you that are worthy of respect and to be esteemed very highly in love because of their work. And he says, this is the kind of work to which they are called to, to labor among you, right, to be over you, and to admonish you. In the Lord. Now, that in the Lord is only occurring there one time, but it it really covers it all. These things are done in the Lord. So what does it mean to to labor among you? It means to work hard. That's the same word that Paul used in chapter 1 when he spoke about the church. He said, we know about your labor of love. Uh, You know, when you're a pastor, vocationally or non-vocationally, there are nine pastors, by the way, nine elders in this church family There are a few of us who are vocational guys full-time, and there are a few of us who are non-vocational guys. But our work is hard. It's not hard the way a roofer's work is hard. It's a different kind of work. I'm glad I'm not a roofer, particularly in July or August in Phoenix. But the work that we do is mentally and emotionally and spiritually strenuous. It's difficult labor. It's 24-7. It never stops. And it's across a wide spectrum. People who have physical needs, Mental health needs, spiritual needs, deep needs. We are accountable. We don't kind of work on our own. We have a boss. And our boss is the Lord God Almighty. It's the Lord Jesus. He is the shepherd of the sheep. He's the one who bought and paid for the church. And so we're going to give an account to the chief shepherd. That's what Peter said one day. And the stakes are very high. Couldn't be higher. Heaven and hell for you and for me. So it matters, the work that we do, and we ought to work hard at it. He says the word to be over you in the Lord, which implies certainly some spiritual authority. And, and that's always difficult. There's always a little bit of a rub, maybe a little pushback. In our culture, we're trying to flatten those kinds of authority structures. And we say, wait a minute, in the church, spiritual authority? Well, that's what Paul seems to say right here, right? To be over you in the Lord. If you, if you remember the climbing analogy... There are certain climbers on on a trek like up Everest or any mountain that are really leaders. They're showing the way. they are three or four steps ahead all of the time, and they point out those hidden crevasses that can take your life. They're meant to be there in order to get you to the top. And to get you to the top safely, successfully. That's the kind of leadership that elders and pastors are supposed to to give to a church, to give direction to a church on how to live and walk in a way that pleases God more and more, to be sanctified people, to love Jesus wholeheartedly. And so to be over you in the Lord in that sense. And then to admonish you, another very countercultural exhortation from Paul about what these leaders, what leaders like me are supposed to be doing, to admonish someone. None of us likes to be corrected about what we believe. We have a certain set of beliefs, and I don't want to be corrected. I want to just keep right on going down that that line. But sometimes our beliefs and the things that we hold to need to be corrected. And sometimes our behaviors are really out of line, and they're sinful, and they need to be confronted. That's what admonishment is. And nobody really likes that. And uh, I've been on the receiving end of it, and I've had to dish it out occasionally. And often when you share it with someone, when you take great care, or at least you hope you're doing that, and, and you, you do it privately, not publicly, as much as possible, and you're, you're trying to be caring for people, often the pushback is, well, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And do you think I know the problems that you have, and they point the finger back at you? Sometimes it doesn't go well, right? But it's a calling that, that we have to do this kind of thing. It's not that we're called to be nitpickers, or spiritual police, as it were, but we are called to guard you and guide you to get the church from the base all the way to that day when Christ returns, right? To summit t- together. And so, when there are false beliefs and there are be- sinful behaviors and attitudes that are happening in our lives, then admonishment needs to be brought to bear because it's for your own spiritual well-being. It's for the health of yourself and for your family and even for the sake of the church family that we have to do that. And Paul says that the church ought to respect those leaders who labor among them and to esteem them very highly in love because of their uh, because of their work. And so if you remember, we're roped together in this. We're headed to the summit And all of us are climbing together, and so you're supposed to give some esteem, to highly esteem them in love, right? These are are guys who are going to lead the way for us. They're going to help us, right, know how to engage people to put Jesus first for the sake of others. That's what we're after. And so on this climb, when we give direction, when pastors and elders direct a church and we say, this is what we believe God is asking us to do, really the default position for a congregation is to say, we're with you. We're with you. Unless we've asked you to do something unbiblical or unlawful, right? Unethical, as it were. Uh, immoral. The, the response ought to be, we're with you. Because there have been leaders given to us by God who are over us in the Lord. And, and so we ought to have some trust. That's, that's part of having... An esteem for someone in love, to give them the benefit of the doubt that when they act and when they choose and when they give direction, that they are doing so for the glory of Jesus and for the good of the local church. And so it behooves us to, to line up, right? To rope in and to follow leadership that way. And, and I would say as well to not just seek out pastors and leaders to affirm a decision that you've already made or a choice that you've already made. Man, I, that happens a lot, and somebody says, you know, I've, I've been really thinking about this and praying about this and I've had a choice and I've made it. And what do you think? And it's a little bit of an awkward position if you think, well, that wasn't a very good choice. I hear you telling me that you prayed about it and I'm wondering. But you still have to have that conversation. Maybe before you get to that place, just engage, you know, grab one of us and say, hey, I'm, I'm praying about this. Would you pray with me? And here's what I'm considering. What do you think? What does the scripture say? And, and do those kinds of things. Hold them in high esteem. Don't be, I say all these things, these are, this is one of the most difficult parts of the sermon today, right? Don't be someone who's hard to care for. Don't be someone who's hard to care for. I could use a parental illustration, I'm a little afraid. I've got three sons. They're not all as easy to care for as the other. They're different. Let's not be hard to care for for one another, right? That's, that's it. And Paul's point is what? What does he say there? Be at peace among yourselves. And really I think that 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 point is many ways overarching in the entire text because... I've separated this out. I could have preached all the way to the end of the book, but I decided to leave the benediction and all of that for last. But he winds up saying, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly. I think there's a reason why peace happens at the end and peace is spoken of at the beginning of this text. But I've given it to you in two messages. He's saying, I want there to be peace in the church. And how I would apply that here is that things go well for a congregation that humbly submits to the leaders that God's given to us. Things go well for those kinds of churches. And so, pride and sin can get in the way. It can disrupt that. Paul is calling for peace. He's saying, fight the temptation. Fight the temptation to not respect those who are in leadership. Fight the temptation to not esteem them in love for their work. All right, enough of that one. The other two are not going to go as fast as that one did. Maybe you don't think that went quickly. I don't think it did, but here's the second one. Do good to those around you. Do good to those around you. So, we want to humbly submit to, to, to those who lead us. We want to do good to those who are around us. In verses 14 and 15, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. There's the title of that point, to do good to those around us. And it looks in differently in different ways, right? When you you look through all of these commands, initially you might think, especially when you get to these, that this is more words for a pastor, for an elder, for leaders to do these things, to admonish and to encourage and to help. But Paul is giving these commands to everyone in the church. These belong to you and to me to do these things. Remember, If I can stay with that analogy, we are climbing this mountain. We are working through a world that is sinful and broken, and we are roped up together. And so, yes, while you follow leaders who are three or four steps ahead of you and whom you're trusting to know the way and to faithfully show it to you from the Scriptures, you're also roped to each other. And so, you're here to help one another make it to the top. If I could put it this way, Paul is saying no one gets left behind in the church. Everyone in the church is responsible for everyone else. We're climbing together. We want to help one another get to the top. That's why he's saying this. And so he gives us these three things right at the top that are easily apparent, right? Right here. Admonish the idol. Admonish that. What does that look like for you and me to admonish that? Well, the idol uh, that, that word has one connotation in our thinking. People who are idle, people who are lazy, maybe people who aren't getting after it. But it's actually a military term. It's a military term. It would be used of a soldier, a sailor, a marine, an airman, whoever, right, that, that breaks ranks. They get out there on their own. They leave the formation, right? They're unruly because of it. They're disorderly because of it. They're, they're undisciplined. They won't stay in the ranks. Some people think that Paul is referring to the people uh, in chapter 4, Uh, verses 9 through really 12 people who had taken the teaching of the return of Jesus too far and they said well if Jesus is imminently coming then I don't need to go to work I'm just gonna do my own thing and you know what my church family will take care of me and provide for me but Paul is is pressing in I think even beyond that these are people who yes have become a burden to the church and perhaps materially so Right? And so they're unruly, they're undisciplined, they're disorderly in that way. They are depleting the church family of perhaps material resources that could be better used to serve people who have truly, truly have needs. But I think he even goes beyond that. If you know someone, he would say, who is so disorderly and undisciplined and unruly about their life that they are not only, or that they're not just consuming the resources, the physical, the material resources of a church. But perhaps they're consuming the people resources of the church. Perhaps they are completely taking up the time and attention of an elder team because they're so unruly and disorderly and out of bounds. That is someone that needs admonishment. That's what he's saying to all of us together, not just to the elder team, but to all of us. Now, again, we're not admonishing people because we want to provoke folks, because we want to embitter people. We're not trying to stir up problems. We're trying to bring some good about. We're trying to bring someone back in, as it were, right? Someone is going their own way on this climb. They're dragging on the rope. They're breaking out of the formation, as it were. They're they're really threatening to pull the group apart with their behaviors, with their attitudes. And so they need to be corrected so that they would join the family all the way to the top. He says encourage the the faint-hearted Encourage the faint It literally means people who are small-souled. What does that that mean, practically speaking? It means people who need comfort and encouragement, probably for the reasons that we saw in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, people who lost a loved one, a family member, a friend, and they're grieving, and they're hurting, and they have questions about that loved one, and will they be in on the return of Jesus and, and what happens in the kingdom? So they're faint hearted. They're, they're grieving about that. Maybe it's someone who has doubts about their spiritual life or someone who has experienced a divorce and it's been very difficult for them. Maybe someone has lost a job. Maybe someone who uh, has have had a hard time finding work. And we know that that's true for, for folks. Maybe it's someone who has a son or a daughter who's wandering and it just weighs on their heart all the time. Maybe someone with chronic health issues. And we've heard Heard Rick pray this morning already. And we prayed before our, our service today. We have a lot of folks in our church family who are struggling physically with illness and sickness. And, and, and it, it happens and it starts to kind of sap the hope out of your life. Those are the people who need encouragement. Encourage the faint hearted right? Encourage them. Look around you for brothers and sisters who need that kind of encouragement. And it can come in all kinds of ways, whether it's a text or it's a phone call or it's a casserole. We're Baptists. We're good at that kind of stuff. You know, we, whatever it is, like a note, a card, don't, don't give up. Let's, let's encourage one another that way, the faint-hearted, looking out for brothers and sisters who are having difficulty along that climb. And then Paul says, help the weak. Help the weak. Uh, I think that Paul is talking about people who are struggling Uh, with a couple of different issues perhaps. When when I think about chapter 1 in verses 9 and 10, Paul said that that this this group of believers, this church, was made up primarily of people who had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, right? So these are people who probably, in turning to God from idols, have turned their back on family members and friends and coworkers and neighbors who were still worshiping idols. In other words, their lifestyle had really changed And they were facing afflictions because of that. That's what Paul said in the first chapter. And they're facing pressure because of that. And maybe you've faced that kind of pressure because your life is so radically different, your values, your choices, because you're following Jesus. It is not easy to follow Christ in the world. And so these people are are weak in their faith because of it, there's so much pressure on them. And then maybe he's talking about those who are weak, meaning those who are struggling, I think with sexual sin, sin, because this was a city that was, just covered with sensuality and immorality. And maybe these people, some of them were saved out of that kind of lifestyle. And now they're struggling with their own flesh and the temptations that come against them. And so Paul is saying, if you know a brother or sister who's struggling with their faith, struggling with afflictions and antagonism from others, questioning their faith, or maybe they have their own questions, maybe it's just temptations, not just about sexual sin, but temptations of any kind, They're weak. Help them. And the word help them means to hold on to them. Do not let go of them. If we're climbing that mountain, if we continue that analogy, we are roped together. Don't let them fall away. Stay hold of them. Don't let them drift. Don't let them walk off the mountain. Don't let them just sit down and quit. Bring them with you. Hold on to them as brothers and sisters. Help them to the top. Paul says be patient with them all, right? I think that he says that because he knows that admonishing the idle and encouraging the faint hearted and helping the weak isn't accomplished in a 45 minute coffee meeting. It's an investment of your life and mine together with one another, of helping one another walk with Jesus day after day through the highs and the lows of spiritual life in a world that is broken and marred by sin by people who still are struggling with temptation from within in our own flesh. We need the help of one another to get to the top. Listen, we are all prone to wander, right? The hymn writer said that. We're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I love. We're prone to those things. Over and over, the scriptures say how much we need one another. The Apostle Paul leaned into that last week at the end of chapter 5, that if we don't have each other, if we just try to live this life as believers on our own, apart from a church family, where we're truly invested in one another's lives, then what do we tend to do? We tend to drift off to sleep, right? We tend to drift off to sleep or we tend to become so intoxicated with the stuff of this world that our lives don't look much like Jesus anymore. We get weak, we get faint-hearted, we become unruly, undisciplined, disorderly. All of those things can happen. We need to be patient with one another. We're in for the long haul together as we look for Jesus to come. And he says, see that no one repays evil for evil. He just continues pressing in. Because think about it, right? The church is what? The church is a gathering of redeemed sinners. Praise the Lord. We're we're redeemed. Jesus has saved us, given us new life because of his blood. And yet, we are all being sanctified. This whole letter is written to a group of people who look to be showing themselves to be really right on the spot. They are really doing well. And yet, they have things to learn still. That's what Paul's pressing in. And so we are still being sanctified. And because of that, even though we're redeemed sinners, we're still being sanctified. And that means, man, can we be ugly to each other and mean? I've been the recipient of that over the years. I remember years, decades ago, when I used to do what Craig does in leading worship. in a choir. I remember 80 people sitting in a choir rehearsal and a guy just standing up and, and kind of cussing me out, not kind of, cussing me out in a, in a rehearsal with 80 people there. And this was not just anybody. This wasn't some old boy that just wandered in off the street. This guy was a deacon. This guy taught Sunday school. Oh, yeah. We're in the process of being sanctified. So let's be careful that we don't think too highly of ourselves, but that we think soberly, just in case we think we're above it somehow. Right? It can happen. And beloved, I've dished it out. And I'm not proud of that. It's shameful, He says, be careful that we do not repay evil for evil. Even within the church, we can be evil toward one another. Take care that you don't return it in kind. How we need one another to help us. Because the default of the human heart is to do what? Get payback. Man, we want to get paid. You can't talk to me like that. And we may not say anything in the moment, we may not lash out in the moment, but we get that little passive-aggressive thing going on, and we don't call, and we don't text, and we don't email, and we just kind of find another hallway to go down, and we just live like that's, that's the way it is. And brother, if we live like that too long, there's kind of this detente that's really cold. And if you get enough of those kinds of relationships brewing in the heart of a church, what do you get? A cold church. A church that's not going to be very hot for Jesus in living for him in a way that really matters. And so, he says, don't, don't repay evil for evil. Be careful about that. Forgive when you've been wronged. Forgive when you've been wronged, even when you know it was intentional. Forgive, remember Jesus and how we've been forgiven. And move on. Love your brothers and sisters as much as you can. I know, I know that I've been using this climbing analogy, but when I was thinking about this and how horizontal all of this is, that we humbly submit to uh, to the leaders God has given to us and that we do good to everyone who is around us. I, I thought about this, that, that the church isn't just on a climb, we're, we're, we're moving towards the summit as it were, but the church is very much like a home, a family, right? And not a hotel. Think about this, right? When you check into a hotel, what do you do? You give them money, they give you service. When you check into a hotel, they, 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 they feed you, they shelter you. You pay them, they do the work, right? You're surrounded by lots of people, but you're not responsible for any of them. Isn't that wonderful? There's nothing expected of you in a hotel. You come and go as you please. You're just there for the experience. Everything, man, if a hotel's doing it right, everything revolves around you. It's wonderful to stay in a hotel that's well-run. In a home, there are some things that are the same, right? You're sheltered and you're fed, and it's, it's a wonderful thing. But it's also not like a hotel. Because a home is not a place where you're just there to be served. A home usually has a mother and a father, at least one or the other. A church is different because it has multiple mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters who are around, and, and your role in the home is not to be served, but actually to serve others. In a home, everything doesn't revolve around you. And just your needs, you actually are responsible for the other people in your home. And it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are in the room. You've got responsibilities. Every mom and dad are going to rise up and call me blessed when this is over. Eventually, you will be asked to pick up a broom and to vacuum and grab a a brush and scrub that toilet clean. And you're going to be asked to do laundry and pick up your room and for every middle school boy in the room to take care of personal hygiene. Maybe for some older men as well. All of these commands, I thought we needed just a moment for that. But you know, it's the truth, right? I mean, you follow that analogy, doesn't it hit? Listen, we are members together of a church. To be a member of Foothills Baptist Church isn't just, oh, okay, well, I want to join that church. I'll be a member there. And we give you a card and we welcome you and say, hello, thank you for being here as if you're some kind of a customer. And everything here revolves around you and is here to meet your needs. Wrong. You're a participant. You're a contributor. You are meant, you're roped to one another. And we're meant to get each other to the top, all the way to the top. And so we share these responsibilities as well as the blessings and the benefits of membership together. And so Paul turns his attention Godward then. Godward, in a vertical direction at the end of this text, in verses 16 through 22. And look at what he says there, right? He he says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Trust and obey the God who saves us. And how do we do that primarily? Paul uses this term prophecies, he's talking about the Word, God's word. That's how we know what God wants from us, and it's through the word that we come to trust the God who saves us. So trust and obey Him. Now, sometimes you hear this expression, "The will of God." He says, "This is the will of God for you, right, uh, to do these things, to to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, to give thanks." Oh, I skipped, didn't I? I missed a. Uh, did I miss a whole set? No, I didn't. Yeah, I'm with it. I'm okay. I was lost for a moment. It doesn't happen very often. <laughs> It of kind of shook me, right? Yeah. I, I went too far. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. I'm thrown because I have a timer at the back of the room, and it expired a minute or two ago. Too bad. Thank you for the pause. All right, I've got myself together. Verse 16, right, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's talk about that first and how that has to do with trusting and obeying the God that saves us. Uh, He says this is the will of God for you, right? And so it's a common expression, this is God's will for you, and sometimes the implications of that is a little hazy. It's a little cloudy for us. We think, oh, God's will, how do I know what God's will is for my life today? Should I put it on the red socks or the blue socks? Should I take this job or that job? You know, if you're a handsome guy, should I date this girl or that girl? Right? Or should I date this boy or that boy if you're, if you're, if you're a lady, right? You're thinking about that. What is God's will? But this text is reminded us of something bigger, that God is not so concerned about the job that you have or the, 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 the person that you date. He is much more concerned about the person that you are becoming, the condition of your heart before him. That's what he's talking about. And so that's what it means to trust and obey the God who, who has saved us. It is God's will that we become more joyful and prayerful and grateful people. That's God's will for us, to become more joyful and prayerful and grateful people. That as a church, we would be a church that's more joyful and prayerful and grateful. And not just when the circumstances are working perfectly, but particularly when they're not going well at all. When they're not going well at all. That's what he said. In all circumstances, this is the will of God for you. And man, have we enumerated some difficult circumstances this morning just in our prayer time. And we've not named every need that's in the room this morning. There are a lot of difficulties. How can I be that person? How, how, how do we do that? In days when life is messed up and the prognosis isn't good, When the work is hard and your kids are struggling, how am I supposed to be this joyful, prayerful, grateful person? We remember what the Scriptures teach us about life in this world and about who our God is, that He is sovereign and He is good. He works all things together for good to those that love Him, that are called according to His purpose. He's working for the good purposes and the good outcomes for His people. He promises that nothing will separate us from His love no matter how hard it might be. And if we want a guarantee for this, if we want a visual for this, then we look at the cross of Jesus. We look at the empty tomb of Jesus. God brought about the greatest good for his people in the face of the most horrific evil, the most unjust act ever experienced in the universe. When we think about how difficult our lives are and the terrible things that we face, and there are many of them, we look back at the cross of Jesus and his empty tomb And we see there was nothing worse that's ever happened to a human being on the planet than that. When the innocent son of God was beaten and thrashed for our sins and hung on a cross in humiliation and buried in a tomb dead. But on the third day he rose from the dead. God vindicated his death and so it is through the suffering and the death of Jesus that we know we can be forgiven it is through the suffering and death of Jesus that we're set free from the condemnation of our sin and even if we were to die and someone took our life from us intentionally we will live with him forever so that's the ground on which we can be the kind of people who are rejoicing always and prayerful without ceasing and grateful in All things, that's how we do it. It's not because we always get what we want when we want it because we're actually promised suffering in the world, not always promised good things. But out of his sorrow and out of the sufferings of Christ and out of his victorious resurrection, we have a hope that leads us to be joyful, that leads us to be prayerful and grateful in all circumstances. And so Paul points us then to that text in 19 through 22. When he talks about trusting and obeying the God who has saved us, right? Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Test everything. Hold fast to what's good. Abstain from every form of evil. Paul is telling them when the word of God is spoken to you, don't throw a wet blanket on it. Don't quench it. And if we wonder, well, what does it mean to quench the Spirit? I mean, you could run your Bible. Just look at that verse and just run through your Bible. But I actually think you can do better. You can just keep reading. (laughs) Do do not quench the Spirit and do not despise prophecies, but test everything. It all belongs together. Don't unhitch one of those verses from the other. They belong in a unit. And what we're talking about is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring the Word of God to bear on the hearts of the people of God. That's what he's talking about. And so, he doesn't want them to quench the Spirit in that. So, let me give you some background, right? In the first century, there were people. There were apostles and prophets, and God raised them up, and he gave them to the church. We have apostles like Paul. We had prophets like Silas. We read about him in the book of Acts, and they're teaching, and they're preaching, and they're exhorting the church. They were the mouthpieces of the Spirit of God to the church in the first century. And in Acts we see them, Paul writes about these men, particularly in the letter to the Ephesians in three places. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20, in chapter 3 verse 5, and chapter 4 verse 11, Paul refers to the apostles and the prophets as the foundation of the church. They were the foundation of the church. They were the mouthpiece of God's spirit to the early church. Before the church had one of these, a completed Bible, we had apostles and prophets They were the final authority for life and practice in the church until we had this completed set of scriptures before us. Now, for some reason, as Paul writes to these people, they've gotten skittish. He's telling them, don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophecies. So they must have been quenching the Spirit. They must have been despising. they're, They're skittish about something. Whether it's about what he has said to them, maybe what Timothy said to them earlier on his visit to them, maybe what some other apostles or prophets have said to them, and they've quenched the spirit either by rejecting out of hand what these people have taught them or they've treated their words with contempt. And we might kind of side with them a bit because we know that Jesus has spoken about some of these things. He said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. By their fruit you will know them. Jesus said that. So we say, well, they're kind of on Jesus' side if they're being careful, and that's true. The apostle John warned in 1 John chapter four, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so Paul, like John, tells them that the solution isn't to just reject prophecy, these prophets, but to test everything and to hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Now, in their day, how would they have tested it? Because they didn't have a Bible, how would they have tested it? They would have remembered what Jesus taught, which was taught to them by the apostles. They would remember what was taught in the Old Testament. Many of these people had grown up, kind of come to faith in the synagogue via the ministry of Old Testament teaching that they had heard. Does this all match up with what God has been saying? They would have heard those things. In our day, we test everything. How? According to this book. We don't test it by my opinion or yours. We test it by what God has given to us. Today, we have the voice of the Spirit speaking authoritatively to the church through the Bible. That's what we have. That's what we believe as a church. The Scriptures are breathed out by God, right? And so we quench the Spirit every time we reject what God has to say to us, and we fail to obey what He has said to us in His Word. We quench the Spirit. I I want to give us some cautions about some issues as we finish we're almost there. In the world today, in the world of Christianity today, there are those who go by the moniker of apostle or prophet. If I could just cut to the chase, I would tell you to steer clear of anyone who takes that for themselves. Steer clear of them. As a church, I can tell you this. If you're wondering, is this the church for me? We do not believe that there are such a thing as apostles of Christ or prophets any longer because the Bible is before us. We have the written Word of God, complete and true from start to finish. We believe in the sufficiencies of Scripture. We believe that there is a difference between Paul's day in the first century and our day now. We have a completed Bible, the Word of God. And so we don't believe in apostles of Christ like James and Peter and John and Matthew. We do not believe that there are biblical prophets who speak a revelation from God, who have a word from God that is authoritative in our lives that get direct revelation from God. That's infallible for our lives. Anymore, we don't believe in that. Not like Apostle John who wrote Revelation, which is a prophecy, or Amos, or Jeremiah, or Isaiah, or even Silas that we've mentioned. We believe that those days are done. Remember that Paul wrote that in Ephesians, they were the foundation of the church. But once that foundation has been laid, we don't have any right to add to the foundation it's been there for us. So we steer clear of people who want to take those monikers for themselves, apostles and prophets. Second, I do believe that Paul is saying that we use our words, we prophesy in that sense to one another. This is prophesying in a sense. This is forth the word of God. And we do that with each other. If you go back to chapter 4, Right at the end of that passage, 13 through 18, what does he say? Comfort one another with what? With these words. He says, encourage one another, exhort one another, build one another up in chapter 5, verse 11, with, with these words. And we've seen him tell the leaders in this church, in this text, admonish, admonish the idol. And he's told the entire church to do the same thing. We need one another if we're going to get to the summit together. We have to speak to one another. From the scriptures, it's part of trusting and obeying the God who has saved us to rely on one another to speak into our lives. So we shouldn't despise words of comfort and encouragement. We ought to be ready to receive those from a brother or sister in Christ and even those who want to admonish us about our attitude or our behaviors. We shouldn't be too careful to quench the spirit. We should test it, not just to despise it, but test it. That's an example of what ought to happen. One-on-one, in our small groups, our foothills groups, that's the kind of thing that should go on. That's how we learn to hold fast to what is good and to abstain from every form of evil. If a brother or sister in Christ, and I really don't like this, but if somebody comes up to you and says, brother, I've got a word from God for you. Um, let me just tell you, that, that is sensitive territory. You have a word from God for me. I would just assume that you come to me and say, brother, I've been praying about something and this is, this is what I'm thinking. I see this in your life. Can we talk about this? I think that when you start with a phrase like that, you're taking way too much authority for yourself. You're communicating perhaps more than you ought to. That would be my caution. But if they come and they say something to you about this or that, if it matches up with the scriptures, then hold fast to it. But if it doesn't, throw it away, forget it. And, beloved, let me encourage you to take one more step. Go back to that brother or sister and show them the Scriptures because of where it doesn't match up and why it doesn't. Because we can't just be scattering hither and yon within the life of the church, prophesying to one another about this or that or the other thing without a level of accountability to the book, to the Scriptures. That's where we anchor ourselves. Here's the final caution I'm going to give you. Boy, I'm on, a, I'm on a snit today, I guess, right? I am want to encourage you to be cautious when you go into a Christian bookstore. I think Christian bookstores are some of the most dangerous places for Christians these days. They are loaded with garbage. So is the internet, so is your television, so is Christian radio. Please take care what you invest your time and attention and money in. Because not everybody is going to tell you the truth from the book. There are a lot of people who are pastors and leaders, apostles and prophets. And what they are teaching is not the gospel, it's not the truth of Scripture, and you should take care. Be cautious about those things. Let me, let me just give you one, a handle for this, right? If you have a book, if you've seen it advertised, or you think, I want to buy that book or I want to listen to that teacher or that preacher, let me encourage you to do this before you invest any time or money there. Find, the personal per, find that person's statement of faith or that organization's statement of faith and compare it with the statement of faith of your church family, where you come to be fed and cared for and, and carried faithfully, hopefully, to the top, as it were, if we keep that analogy. Compare those biblical statements. You can find ours on our, on our website. And if you can't find a statement of faith for that person who wrote that book or that organization, well, then just don't, don't bother. But if you find it, compare them. And if you look at it and you say, well, it looks pretty much the same, if you still have a question, if you still think, Pastor Brian said, be cautious. Okay, good, be cautious. Then grab me or grab Cody or grab David or grab Craig or grab Rick or Kevin or Mario or John. Grab one of us and say, what do you think about this, brother? is this a good source for spiritual health to feed my soul that's one of the reasons that there are elders and pastors in the church and I want to encourage you to do that for your own spiritual health and well-being so that we hear clearly from God's Word and we follow it so we don't find ourselves drifting in things that are unwise and not helpful at all we are a family of believers headed to forever together roped to one another And life will really go well for us, according to the Apostle Paul, if we will humbly submit to the leaders that have been given to us. And if we will do good to those who are around us. And if we will trust and obey the God who has saved us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I'm grateful uh, that even in the ineptitude of the preacher, your word is truthful and powerful and your spirit still works. I thank you for that. Father, I thank you for a congregation that listens and is attentive and uh, longs to hear what you have to say, not any opinion of a man, but what you have to say in your word. Help us to test it and be true about it. Let us be good Bereans uh, that as a church together, we would spend some time, maybe even in this text again today, in measuring it and listening and testing and saying, God, are you really saying this to us? Father, help us today as we think particularly about uh, doing good to one another. Helping one another to the top. Do we know a brother or sister that needs admonishment? By your spirit, may we be gentle but also forthright, careful, but also loving enough to bring correction. Father, help us to encourage the faint hearted. Because we all get faint hearted from time to time. We need each other. Father, help us this day to hold on to the weak to love one another well, and to be patient with each other. Lord Jesus, we long to see you. We long for your return. We long for the day when our redemption will be full and final and complete, and this process of sanctification will be done, and we will be like you. Help us on the way by your spirit and your word. Bring it to bear in our hearts that we might be your people, shining like a bright light in this community and to the nations, we pray that nothing that we do or say would ever get in the way of anyone who wants to know more of Jesus and follow him. We pray it in your name, Lord. Amen.